Advent is a time of waiting. It's a time of preparation. It's a time that intentionally says, joy is coming, but for now, we wait. It's hard to be an Advent people in the world in which we live. It's especially hard because this time of year is packed with nostalgia, and sometimes it all feels a little bit put on. Here's the beauty of the gospel. Here's the beauty of the scriptures. The scriptures are not full of people who got it together. It's full of people who needed the only one who could get them together. This time of preparation, this time of waiting, this time of longing is a time for families to look back and to celebrate all of the goodness and all of the grace and all of the gifts that God has given them. But for those who have lost and and for those that have found themselves feeling a bit cold in their heart towards the world around them and even towards the Lord, this season's for you too. And for those who find that no matter how hard they try, They just can't make life work out like a Hallmark movie. The season's for you too. It's okay if you can't find your Advent candles in your house. If your day of Sabbath and preparation was counting exactly how many times do I have to yell at my kids today? The season's for you too. The season doesn't say that life isn't hard. It doesn't put us in some sort of weird time capsule or under the sand or with a blanket pulled over our head. No, what this season does is it allows us to look with eyes wide open at a world that is not as it should be and to rejoice that God sent a rescuer to come and do for us what we could not do for ourselves and remind us that we are an Advent people living in a resurrection world. We are a people longing and waiting for Jesus to come again just as we celebrate his coming for the very first time. The story of Ruth and Naomi, of Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, is a reminder that even when it seems bleak, God is still at work. And though we can't understand it or even necessarily explain it, we nevertheless put all of our trust and hope in him. When last we met the book of Ruth, Elimelech and Naomi... And their sons had gone out of Judah, out of Bethlehem, the house of bread, and gone to Moab because they felt that since there was a famine in Bethlehem, they had a better shot at protecting themselves 
by disobeying God and leaving the promised land and going to Moab. Ironic, for Elimelech's name was uh, meant my God is king. And Elimelech lived as if God was not king, but he was. Life happened, consequences happened, and now Naomi has found herself and her Moabite daughters-in-law without husbands or sons, and they are in an alien land with no way out. Turn your Bible, if you would, to Ruth chapter 1. We'll pick up at verse 6 and read the rest of chapter 1. Stand, if you would. And hear God's word. Then she, Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. They lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went off, uh, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Is this pleasant? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Beloved, this is the word of God. It is absolutely true and it is given to us this day in love. God, we pray that you would speak every single word of this holy text. 
Do this all and more for us, your people, for your glory. These three women have nothing. They have no right to land. They have no husbands in a patriarchal society. They have no inheritance. They have no way out. They're absolutely at rock bottom. There are some incredibly powerful things that we see happening in this text. Narrative is fun to outline because it doesn't exactly follow um, logic or propositions. It's a story. So there are two things that I want to pull out of the story, and that's looking at Naomi's lament and Ruth's love. But before we get to those things, I do want to set one additional thing, and that's words that Naomi uses to speak to to her daughters-in-law. Because it's through understanding these words that she says and the specific way that she says them that it unlocks very powerful things in the story. The hymn writer George Madison wrote the hymn, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. Madison while he was in seminary studying for ministry, was struck blind. At the time, he was engaged to a woman, and she broke the engagement off and said, I don't want to be married to a cripple. And she left him. For the next many years, Madison lived with his sister who cared for him, who watched out for him and provided for him. His sister was engaged to be married, and on the night before her wedding, he said in in a flash, it was as if the Lord spoke to him, and he framed the words to a love that will not let me go. The third stanza says, O joy that seekest me through pain, I rest my weary heart in thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel its promise is not vain. What Madison was talking about there was not some sort of beautiful, serene, somewhere over the rainbow type moment. He was evoking the promises of God ratified to Noah. Because the Hebrew word underlying what was happening there as Noah uh, found the ark now on dry land and saw that the Lord had put a rainbow in the sky, it was not just the word for a pretty rainbow. The Hebrew word was, a ro- was the word for a battle bow. And the battle bow was cocked and pointed at heaven. And God said, I'm not ever going to destroy the earth again by flooding it as judgment for mankind. No, what God did 
is ultimately he destroyed his son. He killed his son so that mankind would not suffer. This idea of God's covenant faithfulness, God's hesed is the Hebrew word, is all over the pages of Scripture. And it's the word that Naomi invokes when she speaks to her daughters-in-law. When she says to them, you have dealt kindly with me. Naomi's life is over. But it was time to go and return to Bethlehem and face her life of loneliness. This word, hesed. She says, may the Lord hesed with you. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt kindly with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest. Here's the thing that I want you to see about what the, when the Bible talks about love. Biblical love, hesed love, covenant faithfulness love is the opposite of the type of love that we are instinctively wired to both show and understand and receive. The love that we find modeled all around us is the type of love that says we are to always act on our feelings. Biblical love says that we act on our commitments. Our feelings will come. In Paul Miller's book on the book of Ruth, he says this type of love is unbalanced and uneven. There's nothing fair about this kind of love. Commitment love is what held Jesus on the cross. Commitment love is what we are commanded to have for one another. It's what protects us from bailing on relationships with other people because our feelings change. Look at what it says. Verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly. May the Lord show, show hesed love with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Ruth and Orpah have shown to Naomi this type of one-way love. What's interesting, by the way, is that in the ancient Near East, it was the commonly held belief that gods were tied to local people. And so the god of Moab was strong in Moab, but weak in other places. But Naomi knew that the Lord, the God of Israel, was the God of the world, the God of the universe. He was strong everywhere. So this is an incredible act of faith on her part to say, may the Lord go with you back into Moab and may the Lord show his kindness to you as you have shown kindness to the dead and with me. Naomi is showing self-sacrificial love in order for her daughters-in-law to have life. She's showing this love by ordering her daughters-in-law the only thing that she has left in the world away from her so that they can thrive. Not to put it too starkly here, but she is deepening her own death so that her daughters-in-law might live.
Friends, the love that we instinctively know in our lives basically reduces to this maxim. It is your life for mine. Your life for mine. Ultimately, my needs, my feelings, my desires, my wants, my wishes are what are ultimate in my world. And so we treat others with this type of, I won't call it love, but we, we treat others this way, we expect to be treated that way. But here's the thing, the Bible turns that on its head, so Covenantal love, biblical love, gospel-shaped love is not your life for mine. It's my life for yours. It's one-way love. It's not score-keeping love. It's not fair love. And this is why it's foreign to us. It calls us to go against our very nature and, the, and die so that someone else can thrive. And it's here. It's, it's getting this type of picture of what the Bible, when the Bible talks about love, when the Bible talks about commitment, this is what it means. It's, it, this is when we can be the most liberated by the gospel, when we realize that it, it's, it's not happiness at the root of love. It's not satisfaction at the root of love. It's not warm feelings at the root of love. But that the root of love is sacrifice and death. That I die to myself, I die to my wishes, I die to my scorekeeping, and I die to all the things that would center the world around me so that it's my life for yours. What's beautiful is that when you, when you see that love is that, Satisfaction and happiness and warm feelings and all those other things come. But when you make satisfaction, happiness, warm feelings, or anything else the center of why you're doing love, you're not doing love, you're doing selfishness. It's only when you see love as self-sacrificial that you die so that someone else would thrive. That is what the Bible talks about when it talks about love. Now, I would be remiss if I did not say that it is easy and it has been done to take this concept of love and use it as a way of justifying staying in relationships that are inherently violent or abusive. No. Call the police. If you can't, I will. If you think that's the opposite of love, you're wrong. Because if there's abuse happening, it's not love. This is what was at the heart of Naomi's command to her daughters-in-law. You've shown kindness to me. Leave. The end of verse 9, look. And she kissed them. And they lifted up their voices and they wept. One of the areas that I want to look at in this text this morning is this idea of lament. 
this idea of lament, seeing the deep grief and deep commitment in her daughters-in-law, Naomi ups the ante. Her life is over, but their life still has a shot. And so, so she paints the bleakest of all possible scenarios for them. She says, look, just imagine. In the ancient Near East, there was a, there was a, there was a way out when people found themselves in this type of tragedy. And it was in this practice called um, a Leverite marriage. And basically, that's this. When the husband dies, the husband's brother would marry the widow, take her as a second wife, and any children that she had with him would receive her first husband's inheritance. It was a way of preserving the family line, and saving the wife from ruin. And Naomi says, look, even this isn't an option. Look at the scenario that she paints for them. She says, even if I get married tonight and we become pregnant tonight with twin boys, it would still be too long for Orpah and Ruth to wait. Verse 11, have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? At this point, we would think that Orpah and Ruth were somehow somewhere in their late teens to early 20s by the time that, there's, that the replacement husbands would be miraculously born. They'd be in their 40s. Their lives would be gone. I don't know if Naomi was comfortable being an external verbal processor or not. But she had to narrate her pain for her family to go deep into it because she was trying to save them from it. And look, sin has consequences. There's no doubt about it that, that sin has consequences, that when things go wrong because we have walked away from how the Lord has instructed us to live, that sin ultimately has consequences. Naomi has experienced the discipline of God. There is a reason for her deep grief. She knows that these things are the results of her choices, but that God has permitted these things to happen to her. God is her God, and yet he is, she feels, against her. Verse 13. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. To 14. They lifted up their voices and wept again. They lifted up their voices and they, they wept again. Uh, verses 9 through 14 show us a picture of life happening in the midst of lament. Uh, the, the reality of what Naomi is saying to Ruth and Orpah is so much that they lift up their voices and they weep. And, and by the way, these are not Western tears. This is not the tear that kind of breaks in the corner of your eye and you wipe it away quickly and apologize for getting so emotional. 
This is the type of, this is the type of pain. This is the type of anguish. This is the type of, of lament that are tears that cannot be quenched. It is anguish that bubbles up from the inside and breaks over and flows out. These are the tears of deep brokenness. Dan Allender puts it this way. He says that lament is a search. Lament is a a declaration of desire that will neither rest with a pious refusal to ache, nor is lament an arrogant self-reliance that is a hardened refusal to search but we don't know what to do with lament. I have some thoughts as to why. When someone is lamenting, when someone is in deep anguish, when someone is in deep grief, when their tears simply know no off switch, when they're tearing their heart out before the Lord, what should we do? May I pose to you one thing that I do not believe you should do. One thing we need not do is reach to our theology to silence their cries. Now, my very saying this has made some of you very nervous. Believing, knowing, understanding, the truths of Scripture, that God is good, that God is sovereign, that God is in control, is not, therefore, a command that we should somehow not experience anguish. The Bible is full of those who ache. The point of understanding truth, the point of understanding scripture is not to make you and I robotic and cold to pain around us. See, most of us have been products of Greek thought. Greek thought would say that emotion is unbalanced. If you are emotional, if you are experiencing grief, you are unbalanced. Still others of us have been shamed by the church, no less, that if we are sad, if we are experiencing anguish, if we are experiencing grief, then we are somehow not believing the gospel. As Steve Brown would say, these are lies from the pit of hell and they reek of smoke. Because, beloved, listen, if we believe that the only way that we're transformed is by cognitively learning or knowing something, then emotion is getting in the way of cognition. We treat sadness and grief and lament as something that should be stopped and fixed because it's getting in the way of knowing and understanding. But if we believe that lament is divinely ordered that it is part of the God-ordained process through which we are deeply changed. Lament is not a thing to be changed, but rather is a path and a process that enables us to be changed. Throughout the book of Ruth, 
Do you see what God's response to Naomi's grief and anguish was? Do you see what it was? He didn't raise up a prophet to say, thus saith the Lord. He didn't drop a scroll onto her lap with a memory verse that she should tuck away. He gave her Ruth. He gave someone to be with her, to weep with her, to be present with her. So what do we say to the Naomi's in our life who are deeply sad? Weep with them. Be present with them. Beloved, this is not a failure to apply or teach good theology in the moment. This is the practice of good theology in the moment. We believe that our cries and our lament properly before the Lord is the way through which we are changed. So be in the moment and be with people. Listen, lament, bitterness, anguish, grief, born out before the Lord. And by the way, it may not be filtered. It may not be neatly packaged and put together. It may be in the midst of the anger and in the midst of tears, and it may be fraught with untruth and truth simultaneously. But look, look at what the Bible says, that lament plus obedience is faithfulness. Naomi put one one foot in front of the other and turned back to Bethlehem, to her God and to her people. Was it true that the hand of the Lord had gone out against her from what she could see in the moment? Maybe. Was that ultimately what God was doing? No. Some of you might be concerned that we would get stuck in a rut of sadness. Lament plus disobedience isn't faithfulness, it's rebellion. Friends, we need to be present with people. If you're uncomfortable by deep anguish and emotion, it is also a good time to ask yourself, why? Why do you immediately want to solve it with with theology or solve it with a Kleenex? Why? Why? What is it doing deep in you? What is it exposing deep in you? Sometimes that's God's grace too. Now she tells her daughters-in-law, she says, go. They lifted up their voices and they wept again, verse 14. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. In the journey to leave to go to Bethlehem, one daughter-in-law was persuaded to leave. The other daughter-in-law was persuaded to love. Orpah kissed Naomi and turned home, and Ruth didn't. How is it that Ruth does this? Believer in the God of Israel. Ruth had done hesed with God so that she could do hesed with Naomi. 
because she had committed to following God, this bound her to Naomi. So while Naomi planted her foot on the ground and used strong command words, Ruth had some of her own. Verse 16, Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. And what she proceeds to say is some of the most most beautiful and haunting poetry in all of Scripture. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. In Hebrew poetry, this way, this duality of what she said is a way of conveying in very concise language that she has committed her entire life and being. Where you go and where you sleep, I'm there. Second thing she says, your people shall be my people and your God my God. She's pledged herself to Naomi's people, Israel, and to their God. She has said effectively that her identity is no longer Moab and its pagan God, but rather Israel. No, no longer is it the deity of Moab, but rather the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that is hers. The third thing she says is this, is this is what makes her statement truly profound. She says, verse 17, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. This isn't just Ruth saying, I'm going to go hang out with you and be your slave until you die, and then I'll go back to my normal life. This is now my life. And then she ups the ante and she takes on herself an oath of what the Bible would call self-malediction, where she says, may the Lord do to me and more so if anything but death parts me from you. See, here's the thing. Do you hear what Ruth is saying to Naomi? Naomi just said to her, my life is over. Go and spare yourself. And because Ruth has done hesed with God and is now able to do hesed with Naomi, though Naomi has said to Ruth, go, spare yourself, my life is over. Ruth says to Naomi, no, my life is over. I'm with you. She's given up her future. She's given up a family. She's given up an inheritance. She's given it up at all because she said, my life for yours. Verse 18, and when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her. Verses 19 through the end of the chapter show the return of Naomi and Ruth to Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem would have been a small enough city that there would have only been one gate. There was only one way in. The town was buzzing. It's pleasant. Pleasant has returned. And she says, don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. Because the Lord has dealt such bitterness to me in my life. She is in such grief and sadness that she cannot see what God is doing. She says that she left full and returned empty. Beloved, listen, walking alongside of hurting people doesn't mean that because we have agreed to say my life for yours, it doesn't mean that they won't still bite. 
Hurting people sometimes say hurtful things. Don't miss the irony here. What did she say? I left full, I returned empty. Ruth is standing right next to her. He gave her Ruth. She says, I returned empty. God's grace was not to Naomi, was not to lecture her for her disbelief or leave her to her own devices, but to love her. God answers her cries and her indignation with yet more grace because God's grace always gets the last word. Hesed love, beloved, is a love that is built on commitment. It is determined to do someone good no matter love, no matter what. It is this love that the Father has for his children, that he sent his own son into the world to save them while they were still sinners. It is this love that the Son has for his people when he endures the scorn and the shame of the cross. His love is not a get-your-act-together love, but as Sally Lloyd-Jones would say, a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. Jesus was the one for whom the hand of the Almighty was heavy against. Jesus was the one who left his home and said, you now will be my people. Why is this book so full of hope? Friends, God doesn't invite the, I have my emotions theologically in order and my tears properly wiped people to come to him, though you're certainly welcome. God invites the wounded, the weary, the heavy laden. Jesus said to those people, I will give you rest. It's when you're filled with this type of love, when you've experienced my life for yours, when you've experienced the gospel, when you've experienced Jesus giving his very life for yours, when you have the smile of heaven, this is what enables you to love others with that same love. No longer are you using others and saying your life for mine. You are now serving others in my life for yours because you're filled up with the only love that can truly never let you go. The Bible doesn't promise you here and now that at the end of the sitcom or at the conclusion of the episode, there's going to be a happy ending. The reality is in your life, there may be a to be continued. But the good news is, because of this Advent longing, we know what the second Lord Jesus come quickly.